Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Alok Kovgan, who is the director, editor, writer, and co-producer of a film, Cunningham, which is about the work of the choreographer, Merce Cunningham. It took six years to create this, and it's in 3D, and it's sort of partway a documentary about Cunningham, but it's also a dance film. I sort of want to start there. I've seen some 3D when I was growing up, but it wasn't until I saw a 3D version of Kiss Me Kate, the MGM musical, particularly the song For This Moment On. And when I watched that, it suddenly occurred to me, my God, this is what 3D is about. It could show dance. You're nodding your head as I say this, Allah. Was this something that grabbed you as well? Was it the same film even? So it's interesting. The project started from 3D. In a sense, there was a actually grant from Rockefeller Foundation Dance Film Association to make a film about New York-based choreographer using 3D technology. It was right after a film named Pina came out by Wim Wenders. It was a 3D film about German choreographer Pina Bausch. There were a lot of ideas in the air about trying to bring 3D and dance together as something new. And as you're pointing out, this is not new at all. So 3D uh, has been around for a very long time and there were a lot of experiments at some point with using it in relation to films that involve some kind of action not even dance but action because fundamentally 3D is really good at allowing you as a viewer to experience relationships between people and relationships between people to space it favors those uncut long choreographed shots it sort of allow you to immerse yourself in whatever happens at that moment in the frame. So it's very good for that. So for me, I didn't know anything about 3D. I only saw a film called Pina. And there was a sequence there of Rite of Spring where I felt like, oh my God, there is a potential here to sort of allow people to experience dance rather than watch it. You know, so that's sort of where it started. And I never want to make a film about Merce Cunningham because he's a kind of choreographer where 16 dances going to different directions. You, you're not able to make a single shot. But when I went to see the last performances of the company, that was in the end of 2011, and that grant was out with 3D and New York based and New York choreographer, I looked at his work and I felt, oh my God, maybe 3D can help people experience Merce's work in cinema. And that's how the project started. It came from the idea of 3D, but I was immediately never intended to capture his dances. I was trying to create an experience of his dances in cinema and translate his ideas into cinema with Big C. 
Well, I notice you have kind of a multiple background, both in film where you've served as co-director, this is your first directorial job, but also in dance as well. What were your original ideas if they weren't about Cunningham? I never danced. I played ping pong. But when I got to America from Moscow, where I was born, I couldn't write, and I got interested in physical performance, and that sort of, I came to dance, not as a dancer, but as somebody who wanted to work with physical performance on screen. In this particular case, when I saw the Marskanian company closed in 2011, at the end of 2011, I looked at those dancers, and I thought about 3D. I mean, one thing that also struck me, this is the last generation of Kaihim dancers trained by Mars himself. There would be no other people. So these people were carrying something of Mars that nobody else would. So at that point, I approached Robert Swinston, who was a trustee of Mars Cunningham Trust. And I proposed a project that would translate Mars's ideas into 3D cinema. I didn't know what the film would be. I just felt there was potential. And Robert jumped on board right away. And he brought Jennifer Goggins, who became director of choreography, who worked with Mars for 12 years. And that's how we proposed to Mars Cunningham Trust, which took a long time to basically get the permission and the license to make the film. When you finally talked to Robert Swinston, that created the idea that part of the film would be these dances, would be these ballets that Cunningham had choreographed with the original dancers while they were still around. That suddenly became a big part of the project. But the project is more than that. It, it kind of talks about his evolution as an artist. One thing I found interesting is that there's almost nothing about him as a person. And that had to have been a very conscious choice. When I began researching, and I immediately was struck by this first 30 years of Merce's time in New York, when he was not a famous choreographer, but a sort of a young dancer, figuring out what he was going to do. Now, it's really important that a lot of people remember Merce as an old man. Because he lived to be 90. Absolutely. And he died in 2009. But nobody remembered that he actually got to New York in like early 40s. And there's just very few living people who remember how he danced himself. So I looked at a lot of archival material, archival footage, archival photographs, archival interviews. And those 30 years became sort of the focus of the film in between 1942 and 1972. Where did you find the archives? So Trust gave me access to pretty much any material I wanted. There was one man involved in this whole process. His name is David Wong, and I dedicate the film to him. He was a kind of historian. He met Merce in 1950. He unfortunately didn't live to see the film, but he basically kept notes about every single performance, about every single recording, about every single interview that Merce ever did. How did you find him? Anybody who had anything to do with Merskayim came across David Wong because he basically is the oldest man who had known him. And I think that he had a, this incredible knowledge about him. But he was also sort of a, an artist in his own right. And, and he had his own career and all kinds of things. But he was somebody who, was, who always said yes to things, like Merce did. You know, Merce always said yes to things. Because when you say yes to something, there's a possibility, there's an opportunity to make. And that was what Merce was about, but making. So David was one of those people also. He would always say, of course, you should do it. Why not? And that's how it sort of it started. So you had this material now, and you had Swinson. Eventually, you got the funding to put together the film. 
So the first question is, how did you balance the two areas? And then we'll go into the nuts and bolts of turning the whole thing into 3D and how that was filmed. I think at first, because we had Rockefeller Foundation money, it, it felt like, well, the project is going to come together quite fast. So we did a very intensive eight-month kind of period with Robert and Jennifer Goggins, who he brought in. And we looked at dances. Out of 80 dances that Merce made between, within those 30 years, we picked 14 dances. Out of those 14 dances, we picked excerpts to be reimagined in 3D. Now, how did we do that? I mean, basically, there's some iconic works that everybody knew, and especially focusing on collaboration with Rauschenberg. Uh, Rauschenberg and, and Cunningham and Cage had 16 collaborations within that period out of 22 that they made over lifetime. So it was a very intense moment of sort of birth of the company and sort of world tour and, and sort of recognition and all that. So once we had this funding, we also managed to get together a core group of dancers, about 14 in 2013, and we did six weeks of rehearsals of teaching that material, where Robert and Jennifer were teaching that material to the dancers, and we tried to do 3D experiments with the camera, because we really tried to understand what we could do. Of course, we, my director of photography and myself, we watched every single 3D film that was out there. Uh, we started to sort of understand what is the language, what's the cinema language that we could use to be able to translate, uh, you know, Mercer's ideas. Oh, quick question. Is there a difference in the cinema language for dance as for your other work? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, because I, I always say that cinema and dance are in conflict. It has to do with time, you know, because in one minute in cinema, you can go around the world. In one minute in dance, you maybe made five phrases or maybe one phrase. So it depends. So there's definitely conflict. Dance has a choreography, you know, and the question is like, what do you do with that? Do you actually respect that? Do you break that? You can talk to some people like Jerome Robbins, for instance, and, you know, he would reinvent it for the cinema because he was so obsessed with cinema language and trying to engage with language, create a bridge between language of cinema and language of dance. So there's all kinds of challenges to solve. You know, for instance, I give you a really quick example. You know, there was one moment where we had a dancer bending over and then on stage she bends over for like two minutes. So my people already went out, you know, they left for coffee and cigarettes, you know, they don't want to watch dancer bending for two minutes. Now, but how do I make them do that? If that's absolutely critical for the time and it's really critical for choreographer to keep that, you know, how do I make cinema out of that? So there's a kind of questions like that that kept coming up. A couple of things that I notice just in my watching things, and I've seen Hamilton twice, for example. First time I was toward the front. You could see their faces. Second time was toward the back of the theater where I got the tableau for the entire thing. For any show, but particularly for me since seeing Hamilton that way, it was like seeing two different shows. So for you as a filmmaker, you're hitting that same problem, only you're only one film. Absolutely. This is a really great question. That again goes to the sort of a dialogue between cinema and dance. I can give you an example we shot the suite for two. It's a piece from early 50s that Merce did, and it's at the pond. People say different things, what ideas he was exploring, but one of it was infinity. And so we basically put it at the pond because you kind of have a sense of revealing space in, in infinite space. And we shot it 
from cinema point of view, it was much better to start with the dancers and then sort of pull back and reveal the pond because you reveal the new space and it becomes kind of magical, you know, and the dancers become small and small and then they disappear into the water, literally, by the way you choreograph your camera. From a dance point of view, it's much better. The opposite. You should start with the water and you should actually pull in and you should add on the dancers so that you can actually reveal them. And what's interesting, there was a big discussion about which shot is better and for what. And what Robert said at the time, when actually Jennifer had those discussions and Robert was there and he said, well, you know, Merce would have used both. So all of a sudden, what starts happening, cinema offers these different ways of looking and seeing dance and it becomes something else. It has nothing to do with what is on stage anymore. We're making cinema out of dance. You know, we're making dance, we're bringing dance into conversation with cinema and creating this kind of bridge and creating a different experience, some that you can experience cinematically because cinema is all about the illusion. The same dance you can experience cinematically or you can actually see the dance as a real thing. So that's, a, that's actually an advantage. We have that in cinema, what we can do. I just saw it, but I don't necessarily remember that sequence. What did you do? So we ended up filming it both ways, and we ended up using them both ways in the film. So there's actually, when you see it, it, it starts with the dancers and pulls back into the water. Then there's another sequence that comes back, and then sequence two, and then sequence three, it's the same sequence you, see, you saw at the beginning, and we start with the water and we come back to the dancers. Now, you think it's different choreography just by the way we shot it. In fact, it's absolutely the same choreography. It just shot so differently and it creates completely two different experiences of the same thing. Well, I noticed in those sequences, they were filmed in some very strange places on top of roofs. And I kept thinking, is that CGI or was that on a roof? And in a room with doors. And I noticed that you were using the doors. Did Cunningham do something like that? Or or how did that translate? Or were you just trying to get something new? Merce, I mean, his work was presented on stage, but he was very much interested in sort of freeing himself and his work out of, you know, from the stage, limitation of stage. So he came up with this idea of events. Now, events were new works that were specifically created for specific locations. To make them, he would pull excerpts from different dances, and then he would make a new dance, a collage of all these excerpts, and then oftentimes they would invite new musicians, or, or John Cage would make a new score for this piece. So that's what's called the event. So I kind of felt absolute creative freedom in that spirit, trying to, when I was translating Merce's ideas into cinema, I mean, now, if you think of choreography in cinematic terms, for instance, if it's dance based on idea of falling, how would cinema think about falling? I mean, yeah, you're starting about vertigo and Hitchcock and all these things, and you, you would think about heights, you'd think about, like, so nobody falls unless they do fall, you know, like, but there's a sense of falling, you create a sense of danger because cinema is all about illusion. So basically, that's why we're put on the rooftop. If it's a dance based on the idea of being close and together, how do we highlight or heighten the sense of claustrophobia? So we'd create those kind of web of light and sets. If the dance is based on the idea of layering, we put in the you know, pine trees, like sort of that you can have a sense of layering. Dances become almost part of the landscape. So that's how we thought about all these locations. There's ne never a sort of random location. It's, we call them metaphorical locations that help us sort of translate Merce's ideas into cinema. In that specific case, this piece was Antique Meat you're referring to. It was based 
on Brothers Karamazov, actually. And it was this idea of this kind of Russian mansion and a bunch of scenes happening in it. And so basically we were looking for Russian mansion and we found it in Wuppertal, which is not a Russian mansion at all, but we made it like this. And so that became a sort of our way to engage with Mercer's inspirations and ideas for this dance by placing them in that particular environment. You're listening to an interview with Alakovgan, who is the director, writer, editor, and co-producer of a new film, Cunningham, which is a dance film about and using material created by the late choreographer Merce Cunningham. I'm Richard Walensky on Arts Waves. This one, I'm trying to remember the actual dance, where it starts in one location and winds up in, it's not a forest, it looked more like a uh, tree farm. <laughs> and that was very specific location. If I remember correctly, it's very specific to the background, that particular one. So you made a choice to put it in a forest where Cunningham would not have. That's the approach, you know. So that dance I think you're re referring to is called Ruin from 1959. And it's the first time Mars works with the idea of different planes, exploring action in different planes. And that is the dance that we put in the tree. It's actually a forest, but it's a planted forest. So you feel like a tree farm, but it's actually not. It's just, you know, Germany is super organized. They plant the trees. So uh, in specific ways. So it felt perfect in a way as a sort of a landscape to populate with dances. Now, I have no idea if Merce would ever do it. A lot of people who have seen the film who are Merce's contemporary think that he would totally not mind that. But of course, in the end, I have to sort of own it myself as an artist myself, as a translator, you know, of his ideas into cinema. When you have that original photography, okay, you go, you're zooming in, you're zooming out, you're coming around, you're doing it from different angles. Uh, there is one thing that I notice back in the old 30s, when Hermes Pan and Fred Astaire were putting on dance, they always made sure to show the whole body and the camera moved to show the whole body. When you see more recent films, particularly ones that don't do that, the idea of the dance is lost. That must have always been back of your mind to make sure that we saw the body. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's a great comparison to Fred Astaire, actually, because Cunningham is all about the whole body. He didn't draw his inspiration from some, some psychological ideas. He was coming from physicality and he believed that the personality of a dancer comes through his him actually or her making the action at best of the ability. You know, he would say like when you dance you're at best of being human. But it's not just about your face. So it's not about parts of your body. It's about your whole body. So some people actually ask me like why there are no close ups? Why don't you cut? Like right now, these days, people don't actually choreograph the camera. They shoot it with three cameras and they try to get as many shots as you can. And then they cut it together as a sort of a montage of schizophrenic kind of fast cutting and all that stuff. So, I mean, that's about something else. That stops being about the dance or what you have. It's about the energy that's created through cutting. Now, 3D hates that. You can do that in 3D which is actually limitation technology because your eyes are going to go crazy. You're mm. going to get very disturbed by this. So that actually instills a certain kind of discipline in the way you do. We use only one camera. Actually, it's 
two cameras strapped together, two eyes for 3D. And we basically do it in a very old-fashioned way, like Fred Astaire and all the big musicals with or like red shoes and, you know, with one camera where we have to constantly make choices of what it sees. And because you can't quite cut, the cutting doesn't work the same way as it works in 2D. You can sort of cut from like a wide shot to close-up. It doesn't happen. What you have to, if you want to come closer, you have to physically come closer. Whether you're using crane or dolly or whatever it is, you're not even zooming. You're just coming closer physically. And you can end up on a, on a headshot or you can have half of the body shot. But you coming from a full body shot, you know, you keep the time and space intact. So we never actually shot any close-ups, if you will, on this movie. Everything was guided by how do we best sort of translate the idea of the choreography. And because Merce believed in the fact that it's the full body that is our vehicle, you know, to, to communicate, we basically kept that and kept that his integrity of his ideas. I keep thinking of a film like Hair, Milos Forman's Hair, where they got Twyla Tharp, but they did so much cutting that they didn't need Twyla Tharp because it was all cutting. Or Fosse uh, in All That Jazz has a sequence which is about airplanes where basically there's no movement by the dancers and the movement is created in the camera. That's wonderful, but you can't do that with a choreographer like Cunningham. Absolutely. It's cinematic energy versus performing energy. There's two things. You know, when they cut fast, that's all cinema at place. I mean, you know, think about Busby Berkeley, for that matter. You right, know, like, yeah. I mean, you know, that he was kind of great at using both, but all performers look the same. You know, they, he was casting, like, all blondes or whatever, you know, like... So it was all about like sort of creating something, kind of a, a, a pattern of sort, and then or sometimes cutting it, creating cinematic energy. With Merce, it's about something completely different. You know, it's about what body communicates while the person is dancing. So you can't do that. If you start cutting, you lose timing of everything, right? So you disturb the dance. I do think it, it's not impossible to use this fast cutting with for some particular choreographers, and as you just brought an example of Fosse, or, you know, you take some West Side Story se sequence, you know, there's some amazing sort of edited sequences that were shot like that specifically to create this energy. But in the end, it's all about a dialogue between performing and cinematic energy, and people like Fred Astaire, who had it in his contract that you can't cut, you have to you have to keep his full body. But right. actually, he could do that because he used tap. Imagine if he was a ballet dancer, it would be much harder because he would constantly come out of the frame by right. jumping and so on. So there's a lot of considerations. I think every sort of method works for a specific reason, you know. And I, but in, Mer in Mercer's case, I feel like what we did was absolutely right in terms of finding a way to keep the full body as much as possible. Alakovgan, the other side of the film Cunningham is the archival material. Now, I saw this a streamer on an iPad, and it seemed to me that maybe that material was 2D, but you transformed all of the archival material into 3D as well, and that meant when you had images on images over and over, that's all seen in 3D back and forth. So it's like another dimension to putting together the film. I mean, that was a big challenge. You know, how do you incorporate, how do you weave together 
the this lavish new 3D material that we shot and archival material. And so we wanted to have a coherent experience. So there's not like you go from 2D, 3D all the time. So what we ended up thinking about, we thought of each sequence, actually each archival moment is basically like uh, a Joseph Cornell box. And Joseph Cornell is an American artist that was contemporary to Merce. And the way what he did, he 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 made this, if he was inspired by a particular artist, he made the box like a literally object for him or her that would have a lot of different elements in it. Like they can be objects, photographs, and so on. So we would think about each archival moment as a kind of a black box that needs to be filled in with things in different planes. So the archival material itself, whether it's photographs or a celluloid, we decided that we would only use material originated in on film, there's no video of any kind, which basically created the coherence in itself, and also because it's the period of time that was particularly, you know, celluloid period. People shot in film, and there was no video, so so there's never a situation where you just have one thing on screen. You would have a motion picture, you would have a photograph, you'd have writing, you'd have projector, you you'd have things, you know, and all these things are positioned in space. Although each of them is a 2D thing, because the way they're positioned is spaced, you feel like they're in 3D. There's a sort of an illusion, but it's there, and we consciously did that. And then we actually technically matched each of those shots, especially when there's a transition to, to the live-action footage carefully, so that your eye doesn't, doesn't jump the same plane, if you will. So that would, you're not disturbed um, at the kind of neurological level. There's also the audio... Cunningham says, you know, this is about body, it's about movement. If you want to put a meaning on it, that's great, but that's your meaning. And to me, that defined the whole thing, because I wouldn't have to worry about what is he saying, I could just watch it. Merce always referred to dance as a visual experience, you know, so he basically said, well, just watch it, just allow yourself to watch, and then you'll start seeing things. So, I mean, 3D is perfect for that, actually. But, I mean, yes, we had an incredible job of trying to pull all this material. Now, when I began the project, I thought that Cunningham never talked. I mean, people, there was a, an idea that he was a, not a very good communicator. He had, you know, sort of John Cage was the one who was talking all the time. But when I started researching, I realized how much actually he did talk and how many interviews they gave together with John Cage to some of, the, some of the best journalists, actually, in the interviews of the time on every single public radio you can come across. So I started realizing, my God, and how many similar questions they were asked throughout their career and how many similar answers they gave and how many different answers they gave. So it was a very interesting kind of uh, landscape of material that I could investigate. Was there anything that you found that's in the film that, shocked you or surprised you? Yeah, the best thing I found was actually Cunningham sitting in his hotel room recording himself, which I never imagined finding. I knew there was a book, Dance in the Dance, by Jacqueline Lachev, that she had 37 hours of interviews with Maris, but I never could get access to, unfortunately. But I never knew that he actually was sitting himself because and, and doing kind of a diary-like recording. Because that had sort of some kind of intimacy in them. And it had some kind of very quiet, personal reflection that I never would 
even imagine he would let anybody hear, you know. So that was amazing. The other thing, what I learned, how much actually pain and grit was in those interviews in the 60s, that because things were not going very well, they were constantly suffering. So this this comes in his at, comes through in his attitude, the way he answers those questions, and then how it warms up over time. You know, that was a kind of a whole trajectory when things got better. You know, so so just was amazing to me just by hearing how he talks, how much you can actually get as a viewer. Well, it, it's pretty clear that in those early years, the first twenty years, he was not what we would call successful. I mean, nobody paid attention. And when they did, he got terrible reviews. He had no money. Cage had no money. None of them had any money. And then suddenly, wham, and it changed. Uh, One thing I noticed is that you didn't worry too much about years, about chronology. And as I started the interview, we know nothing of his personal life in the film, and that had to have been, again, deliberate. Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, you know, of course, you know, Merskayim and John Cage were a couple, right? Now, nobody knew about this until 1964. David Wong told me that, the Cunningham historian, that he only learned it because they said, okay, we can stay together in one room during the world tour. Dancers didn't know. They moved together in 19, early 1970s. Well, for many different reasons, you know, because it was, you know, McCarthy, you know, all these people were in the closet and all that. But also, even after it was possible, they, and they moved in together and lived together as a couple, they never discussed their relationships in public. I mean, there's one interview where uh, one public sort of discussion and somebody asked a question, well, what were your relationship? What were your personal relationship? And John Cage said, well, you know, I cook and Merce does the dishes. That was the extent of what they went into. Uh, so it's a very complicated subject. And I think I wanted to keep the integrity, honestly. I mean, you know, I knew there were letters that are published uh, that John Cage wrote to Merce Cunningham, and we used them. But also I read a lot of quite of LGBT theorists who basically said that this whole thing about silence, John Cage's silence is an act of protest, you know. And he, he gave a lecture on nothing in 1948 in the Artist Club. And the Artist Club had, you know, the Kooning, Motherwell, um, and Pollock. And they were a completely different spectrum. They were kind of hetero guys, you know, quite macho, amazing artists at the same time. But... And so he gave this lecture in Artist Club. And again, who knows what the interpretation was, but he said, you know, I have nothing to say and I'm saying it. That was 1948. You know, whatever you want to say, however you want to read it, talking about the freedom to interpret. But for me, that definitely somehow, and for me, for many of LGBT, you know, sort of community theorists, that, you know, that there was a connection between what they were living through. So that's how I'm sort of working with that in the film. Now, I do not think you don't get to know Merz. You get to know him. You know what he's going through. You know that his spirit of persevering, that he continues, that he wants to keep going no matter what. You you get to know him through the way he works with dances. You get to know him through this kind of daily routines that we keep coming back. It's a somewhat circular structure where, despite the fact that we have chronological order from 1942 until 1972 there is a we constantly come back to this idea of repetition and rehearsal and one two three four and one two three four and one two three four because basically that is the daily life of a dancer 
it's not clear also how much he was dancing himself and then not dancing and merely creating choreography. In the beginning, he was dancing. When there's a first question in the film, the reporter asks, and the interviewer like asks him, Merskangham asks us not to call him an avant-garde choreographer or a modern dancer, you know. So what does he want us to call him? In his, and he says, I'm a dancer. And, you know, and that says everything. So, I mean, it, some people think that the only reason he had the company because he wanted to dance on stage himself. And he did until, like, he was 70 and even later. And also his company didn't start until 1953. So what did he do for the first 10 years, you know? He was an incredible dancer and he always wanted to be on stage. Unfortunately, I think, and that created sort of a tension in a way, at the height of his career, he didn't have enough opportunities to dance. You know, he dance like nine performances a year, which is nothing. And that idea of aging, his body as an instrument that deteriorates from birth, you know, this kind of feeling of constant aging and not being able to do and perform at, 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 at his best. That was like, those 30 years are basically filled with that feeling. There's an interesting comment from one of the other people in his company, and you have several of them saying that there's dance, you know, we go to bed, we wake up in the morning, and we have this terrible job. <laughs> and suddenly you realize, well, these people are professional dancers, and they're never getting paid. And if they do, that's luck. I mean, that's something else I want to bring back. It's the spirit. Well, it, it's actually true today also, to, sure. to tell the truth. I mean, dance, I think dance is an underdog of all the art forms because it actually engages your whole body on daily basis, not on your mental state. So you are very aware of yourself and what happens with you in every like every moment, actually. And I think dance is a kind of an underdog of all the art forms in many ways because people are not paid as well most situations. And But, you know, there was an idea, you know, especially in the 50s and 60s. And even now when people start making work or studying out, you know, they have to uh, sort of be so dedicated and so believe so hard in what they're doing, you know, in their vision uh, that... They had to put up with that. They had to keep going. And that's what's something I wanted really to get across in the film. I wanted to sort of demystify what do the dancers do. Yeah, so they have a performance. It's all this, everybody's working hard. There's a performance. And then what? And then there's nothing. This comes back to something we talked about before we went on the air, which was, you know, your own career, putting on a film and then it's gone and you have to move on, but also the fact that in looking at your career, insofar as I can find anything online, I mean, there's a struggle to make money doing what you're doing until you reach a point where you can actually make films. The project, like, you know, almost seven years in the making, and half of it was actually making the film, and half of it is making the film happen. And that's a kind of... Uh, you know, it's very difficult uh, to accept that because, you know, as, a, as an artist, as a maker, you want to just make. You don't want to think about making it happen. But reality is such that you constantly have to negotiate those two things. And also you have to live somehow on top of it because oftentimes the films that you make, they you put everything in it and you never make any money. You pay everyone else, but you don't 
yourself. It's like you lost person in line to get anything. And that's why you also you work at St. Petersburg Dance Festival and you uh, curate a film series. Well, actually, I did that, you know, so I basically started Dance Film Festival because I was very interested. It's Dance Film Festival, right? It, because I was very interested in uh, collaboration between choreography and, and cinema. And I ran it for 10 years. And then I used to do Balagan film series in Boston of experimental cinema that I also ran for 10 years with my partner, Jeff Silver. But the reality is none of these jobs make any money. The job that did make money quite a bit for me was editing so I became a professional editor and I basically edited those you know kind of I call them longitudinal documentaries where you help people to make their films out of 300 hours of footage and basically become part of the crafting of the story and all that it's very difficult for me to do that right now you know because actually the more you make your own work the harder it is to work for other people so it's a big question what am i going to do in terms of survival because if every project takes you know six seven years how do you actually maintain your livelihood but i do think you know every project you know brings new opportunities basically you never know what's going to happen and i think that's sort of you have to stay open and you have to keep figuring out but the main thing is just keep making things, which that's what Merce said, um, you know, will get you through. And actually with Merce specifically, I always, you know, I always came back whenever there was a dark day, you know, doom day, I would always think about what he had to go through for 30 years, you know, because all his fame came like when he was like 45 and was that need for a dancer. Alakovgan, you started with film. Or did you start with dance? Were you a dancer? I've never been a dancer. I played ping pong in the USSR. That was my, as far as my dancing went on, went, you know. But, you know, it's interesting because when I came from Moscow to the U.S., my first background was in linguistics and languages and information science. So I spoke French, Russian, and English. My English was very good. But the thing is, it took me 10 years to get to actually be, being able to write in English. So I couldn't. I mean, you know, it's it's it wasn't my language. So I ended up working with physical performers, and that's how I got interested in uh, sort of uh, dance. And then I learned that actually dance and cinema have so much common history because, you know, what's cinema other than a vehicle to capture motion? And, you know, it's no surprise that Thomas Edison and all these first filmmakers, you know, they were very much interested in filming dancers and they're just all physical comedians or, and all of them, the first actors all came from vaudeville and, and circus and, you know, all different kind of ways of action, moving. So I got really obsessed with that collaboration because it actually gave me a way to communicate without talking too much. And also I started realizing that cinema is really best at capturing action and images and not at talking heads. So then I started thinking, okay, well, these days, you know, we have La La Land as something that wins an Oscar where I'm not fans, but two people cannot sing or dance in the main role. So something is fundamentally wrong about this whole thing. So I'm now basically on the mission trying to bring physicality back to cinema because actually physical performers or at least actors who were trained in any kind of movement like Christopher Walker and Meryl Streep I mean they they create characters they make characters live on screen not for what they say but what they do and that is much more interesting 
Final question then. This film is now out, and um, you said in another interview you were looking at fiction. How far along are you on your next project? I started this project before Merskayim project. I was already kind of thinking about trying to make a fiction film, bring back this sort of physicality on screen, like something between like Bob Foss and Lars von Trier, you know, like a combination. But it's not a musical uh, because I don't musical is kind of structure where you have a narrative, then narrative stops, you have a number, and then narrative continues. I mean, I'm really interested in sort of merging the narrative and action, the f- language of performance together, sort of something like Cabaret did in a way, the most successful out of those. So I am into feature. I started writing it 10 years ago. Uh, so I'm just very eager to come back to it. It's going to be actually set in Asia with the Asian choreographer which I'm not giving the name yet, but it will come. You've been listening to an interview with Ala Kovgan, who is the director, writer, editor, and co-producer of the film Cunningham, about Merce Cunningham. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>